So I'm starting a short series. We have four weeks until Easter. So we're going to look at some of the major events that took place just before the crucifixion and, of course, the resurrection that follows. I'm titling it the Via Dolorosa. You probably are familiar with that phrase, that term. Via, of course, a Latin phrase. Via means way. Dolorosa means suffering. And specifically, it's the path that Jesus carried the cross on, on the way to Calvary, which is another Latin word. Calva means skull. That's why it's often referred to as the place of the skull. Golgotha is the word as well. Yes, Jesus carried the cross, but he suffered all along the way. But we're going to look at some events in his life that led up to his crucifixion. I've entitled my message for today, which deals with the triumphal entry. You say, well, wait a minute, that was an exciting time. They were celebrating. Jesus was weeping. We'll find out as we read a moment ago and the reason behind that. But I've entitled my message, The Day the Jews Missed Their Messiah. We wonder, how can you do that? I mean, he spoke like no man ever spoke before. They said that of him. He contended with the Pharisees, and they could not trap him in any sin or anything that he said. And he did such marvelous miracles, feeding 5,000 or more at a time, raising people from the dead, healing the blind. How could they miss the Messiah? We look back and we say, well, it's obvious Jesus was the Messiah, but they missed him, and we scratch our heads, but... Maybe we would have if we would have been there as well. As a nation, we seem to love parades. On Thanksgiving, New Year's, we watch them on TV, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. People line the streets for the Rose Bowl Parade, that beautiful parade in California. Or most recently, the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Some parades have even become controversial. Uh, because they're not politically correct. The Parade of Lights has entered into that. Uh, Certainly, the Columbus Day Parade has been dismissed as being insensitive to American Indians. So parades traditionally were held after victory in war, historically, as well as here in our country, where folks returning home from the war were celebrated for their sacrifice, like soldiers, even astronauts after coming back from outer space or the walk on the moon. Today, we probably associate parades more traditionally with something like winning the Super Bowl or the World Series, something like that. Everyone appreciates a little applause now and then, a pat on the back, a word of encouragement, maybe some public recognition. But from what I read in the scriptures, this only happened once in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's the event that we're reading about and studying here this morning, known as the triumphal entry. This is the only time that Jesus accepted public recognition and adulation that we know of. Examining the story gives us a greater insight, I think, into what the Lord really wants from us and what he really is like. In chapter 19, the very first verse that we read, and when he said to his disciples, let us go on and going up to Jerusalem, some things happened. 
And I think most of you are familiar with the fact that they did go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a high point in the land of Israel. And they were coming from Jericho. And they're going up to Jerusalem. From Jericho to Jerusalem, it's a 17-mile trip. And it's an ascent of about 3,300 feet. So it is a fairly steep incline. So Jesus is coming from the east. If you're getting oriented or you look at a map in the back of your Bible, Jesus is coming from the east, from Jericho, and he comes to the Mount of Olives, the Bible tells us, which is the high point in that north to south ridge that runs east of Jerusalem. So you come to the Mount of Olives and on that ridge of hills, we would say, and then you go down into the Kidron Valley and there is the temple on the east side of Jerusalem, the old city. Jesus is coming from the east, comes to the Mount of Olives, we read, and then crosses the Kidron Valley and eventually, of course, comes into the city. Let's read the first few verses, just 28 through 34 again, and I'll talk about them. And I've entitled this first point, Our God Uses Simple Things. Our God Uses Simple Things. And when he had said to the disciples, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage, or Bethany, and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you will enter, and you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of him. Those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. And as they loosed the colt, the owner said, Why are you loosing our colt, the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Our Lord uses simple things. So this event and all of them that we're going to be looking at are recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. They're all looking at these events from a little different perspective. Sometimes they throw in some details that one of the other authors didn't include. So we get a fuller, richer picture by reading all of them. And this begins the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Just so you're putting it in a time frame of chronology, this is the last week of Jesus' life on which Friday Jesus would be tried sentence and then crucified the Friday of this week. Now, it mentions that he sends them to get this donkey. Now, we think of a donkey as a lowly animal, and maybe that's accurate, as a lowly animal, but to the Jews, it was a beast that was utilized by king. And we see that several places if you want to read one of them, First Kings chapter 1, verses 33 and 34. We also re read of others in the Bible that would ride a colt of a donkey, a smaller version, a, a younger version of a donkey. But to the Jews, it was a beast of honor. Not so much horses. You don't read much of anything in the Bible of Jews with horses, but you do read them with donkeys. And the animal the Bible makes note of had never been ridden before. A human had never sat on it before. Now, if you know anything about uh, horses or colts or donkeys or asses or, or any beasts of burden, mules, if they've not been trained, if they've not been broken is the word that we sometimes use, then they can be very difficult to ride. 
As soon as somebody gets on their back, they say, wait a minute, what's this load? What's this weight? What's going on here? And they begin to bolt or jump or, or move around very quickly. But the Bible notes the fact this animal had never been ridden on, and yet it submitted, this animal submitted to Jesus Christ, which is just a picture of his sovereignty over creation. Everything in creation submits to God except us. We don't submit willingly. Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy as well. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. So if the Jews knew their Bible, they would know that Jesus would come on a donkey and he would be bringing salvation, having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The scriptures told us that. And Jesus fulfilled that. Remember, in the last week of Jesus' life, even on the cross, even at the resurrection, he is fulfilling a myriad number, a great number of biblical prophecies. They were promised and he delivered, we would say. Jesus didn't mount a thoroughbred with a beautiful coat and a flowing mane with long, powerful legs that could gobble up the miles. He mounted a lowly animal with hair that looks like ours when we get out of bed in the morning. That's what a donkey looks like. An animal not known for a submissive spirit. When you think of a, a mule or a donkey, what do you think of? You know, an animal that kicks, an animal that resists being pulled forward. So it's not known for a submissive spirit. Big floppy ears. It looks like the ears are out of place, you know, like they should be on a, a bigger animal. Big floppy ears and a bray that sounds moronic, like you're out of tune. It's annoying, moronic bray that they have. Not regal, very ordinary. And doesn't that describe most of us, the people of God, that, and the people that God has used down through history, just regular, ordinary, not too special, not too spectacular, just regular people. That's who God uses. That's who God used to ride into Jerusalem but that's who God has used down through history, speaking of, of us as human beings. Matter of fact, William Carey, the missionary, is called the father of modern missions, who opened up India and translated the scriptures into some of the languages that are used in India to this very day. William Carey said this, If my biographer gives me credit for being a plotter, he will have assessed me correctly. Even though we think of him as a gifted linguist, and a bold pioneer, and a steadfast preacher of the gospel. He says, I was a plotter, and most of God's great people have been plotters. Not extraordinary, not Ferraris, really station wagons, we would say, that just carry the goods. And so we can liken ourselves, really, to the donkey that Jesus rode on. To each of us, God has ordained a purpose to fulfill. This morning in the introduction to Red Rock's class, I talked about purpose. How important purpose is for a church. But God has given us five clear purposes as a church. The only five purposes that the church is 
commanded to fulfill in the New Testament. We can't do everything, but we should be doing the five things God calls the church to do. And as an individual, we should have purpose in life. It helps us focus our concentration. So we're not dabbling in a lot of things. Paul didn't say, these 40 things I dabble in. He said, this one thing I do. He was like a laser beam, not like a light that is diffused, not like, you know, a fluorescent light. He was like a laser beam. And that accomplishes something. We have purpose as a church. We should have purpose as a family. We should have purpose as individuals if we're going to accomplish things for God. God has ordained a purpose for us to fulfill, even as this humble donkey did. The owners were told, the Lord has need of him. He objected. He said, what are you untying the cold? Be like someone coming to your car, jump-starting it, I guess. And you say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's my car. And he said, well, the Lord has need of it. Okay, that's good with me. If God wants it, he can have it. That's the spirit right here. Of course, God sovereignly went ahead of that man and prepared his heart, prepared his mind, so he didn't wrestle the disciples to the ground. He said, oh, that's okay. Take it. The Lord has need of him. That sufficed the owner, and they surrendered what they had to the Lord. That got me thinking. You know, there's a difference between volunteering and surrendering. Have you ever thought about it? Those of you who are in the Army or the military probably have. You learn very quickly, don't volunteer. Because <laughs> it's going to get you in trouble. You're going to be doing something you really don't want to do. Volunteering, you could say it's like this. Maybe in a classroom, you raise one hand. I'll do that job. I volunteer to go. I think I have the answer to that question. Volunteering is raising one hand, and that's by our own volition. Probably the same root word. Volition, we say, I will. Surrendering is not one hand up, it's both hands up. We think of surrendering in the idea of, okay, I'm captured. And that's not necessarily my own volition. I'm surrendering. I have no choice in the matter. Now, we find both of them in Scripture. We certainly want to volunteer. We find that maybe in Romans chapter 12. But we also are surrendering. We're finding ourselves placed on the altar. We're surrendering. Say, God, both hands up. I wonder sometimes if many of us say, okay, I volunteer, but I don't want to surrender because I want to keep control. And surrendering, you don't have any control. You're completely at the mercy of the one that's in charge. We do both. We certainly volunteer, but we also want to surrender to the Lord. They surrendered their animal to the Lord. We surrender our lives to the Lord. So first, our God uses simple things. Remember that. You don't have to be spectacular. You don't have to be outstanding in your field. You don't have to be the best at everything. God just wants you and me, regular people, simple people, maybe we would say. We don't like that term, but just regular common people to say, here I am, Lord, take me, use me. I'm just a donkey. Second, our God deserves sincere praise. Sincere praise. Let's look at verses 35 through 40. It says, then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the cold, 
and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. That's something we don't see. And the other account said they cut palm branches and laid them down. In other words, Jesus was revered or considered so highly honored that even the animal that he rode on, his hoofs wouldn't touch the ground, let alone Jesus' own feet. They spread their garments, and the other passages talk about the palm. That's why it's called Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And they set him on it, and many spread their clothes on the road. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near to Jerusalem, the descent out of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voices for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and this is a quote you probably see reference in your Bible from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We'll read just a couple more verses. Then some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying something that's blasphemous. He answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the very stones themselves would immediately cry out. So second, our God deserves our sincere praise. This was the only time Jesus permitted a public demonstration on his behalf. Most of the time, you know, he stole away from the crowd. When the crowd came to make him king because he had fed them, performed many miracles, they said, we got to make this guy king. Jesus slipped through the crowd, got on a boat, went on the other side of the sea. He slipped away from them commonly. This is the only time a public demonstration he allowed on his behalf. And there's two reasons for that. First, we've already mentioned, he was fulfilling prophecy and he was presenting himself as king. Jesus came to this earth to be king. Now, we stop and say, hey, wait a minute. Jesus is a king, but he came to die. Okay? He did. But he came to present himself as king, and he would have become king if they would have received him as king. You say, well, wait a minute, he had to die. Yes, he still would have died. It would have been a volunteering sacrifice. He would have still had to die because he had to shed his blood. He had to die, but he would have offered himself up, and he really did. No one took his life, the Bible says. He laid it down, but he is presenting himself. Now, after three, three and a half, maybe even four years of ministry, he's presenting himself as king. All the Old Testament prophecies promised that he would be the king. Here is the king. Will you receive him? Initially, they did. But it was superficial because in less than a week, they would be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. It was a superficial hallelujah that they were shouting. And the Bible says, and his disciples began to shout. Now, we think of a disciple as a committed follower. We think of believers as someone who's accepted Christ. They're a convert, a believer, but a disciple is someone that is learning the way and living in the way. A disciple is someone that is knowing the word and walking with the Lord. That's the idea of the term. What it describes here, the disciples shouted, but many of them, we would say probably most of them were not true disciples. 
Matter of fact, we would probably say in Jesus' three and a half years of preaching, teaching, doing miracles, he probably had about 100 disciples at the time of his death. True disciples. Only 100. It's amazing. Now, it grew exponentially after the resurrection and the preaching of Peter and Paul and the other disciples. But he probably only had about 100 disciples, true disciples, true converts that were believing in him. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, presenting himself as king. Some in the crowd understood that. Some really didn't. Second, this public acknowledgement would force the Jewish leaders to react. Because the Bible tells us that after the Passover, the Passover was starting, and they planned to kill Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 through 5. They had discussed that they were going to kill Jesus. They were fed up with it. They couldn't tolerate his teaching and the following that he had. So they had already committed that they were going to kill him. But they wanted to wait until after Passover. Why is that? Because Jerusalem would swell with hundreds of thousands of people that came from all over the world, and particularly in the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, we sometimes say, and they would swell Jerusalem because they were commanded to come there for the feast. So the population of Jerusalem exploded during the Passover time, and they didn't want all those pilgrims who had heard Jesus teaching and preaching up and down the land of Israel to be there when they killed him. So the Bible says they were planning to kill him after the Passover, after the pilgrims had left. Jesus really forced it upon them. They had to act, and they had hoped to arrest him and kill him after the Passover. But God had ordained that his son would be slain when? On the Passover. Why? Because he was the Passover lamb. He was the perfect sacrifice that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to that would someday be fulfilled with a perfect sacrifice he is the lamb of god john said john the baptist said he is the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world john 1 so jesus had to be crucified on the passover because it was his plan and he perfectly fulfilled the passover never needing any other sacrifices down through time because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Being the Passover, Jerusalem was swollen with pilgrims. Many who had seen Christ's miracles loved him, admired him, believed he was a great rabbi. Some of them uh, even thinking that he could be the Messiah. And the throng, the Bible tells us, paved the streets with their garments and palm branches as an act of homage. This is not the only time this has happened. It's happened in, in the ancient world. It was a, a sign of worship. It was a sign of homage. It was a sign of honor to do that for the king. And so they did it to Jesus. And the shouting crowd assigned to Jesus messianic praise. They were saying, this is the Messiah which really incensed the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. This is the Messiah, and the Pharisees couldn't stand it. And so they said, Jesus, do you realize what they're saying? Rebuke your followers. Rebuke this crowd. They don't know what they're saying. They're misapplying the word of God. That's what they were demanding of Jesus. And Jesus made it clear that adoration was inevitable. 
And if he didn't get it from the mouths of people, even the creation, creation itself would cry out. Because this was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and it was prophesied. So if they kept their mouth shut, the rocks would cry out. I think there's almost a double understanding there. I think Jesus is, is, is kind of through innuendo implying that the Pharisees are dumber than rocks. <laughs> I mean, the rocks even can recognize, creation even recognizes that, that he's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Why can't you see it? The rocks will cry out if you don't. Now, our Lord deserves our sincere, our enthusiastic, our knowledgeable praise. That's why we sing songs that are doctrinally contented. They're laden with scriptural truths. They are theological songs that teach. That's what a hymn is. You've heard me talk about the Bible says in Colossians 3.16, it says the same thing in Ephesians. Singing to yourself in psalms, hymn, spiritual. Psalms mean singing scripture. Now we change the wording a little bit so it has rhyme, so it has meter. But we sing scriptural songs. Psalms, hymns, that's a specific definition. It means a doctrinally contented song. A song that teaches about the word of God. That's what a hymn is. And then spiritual songs, that's the third one that's listed there. It's a phrase, ode to the spirit. An ode is a poem. It literally, reverse it, it means spirit-inspired poems. Or we would say spirit-inspired songs. If you really interpret it, it means contemporary songs. Songs that the spirit gave to the church during a specific time that will not last in contrast to the first two. Scripture is going to last into eternity. Hymns will last throughout time. We still sing hymns that Martin Luther wrote in the 1500s. 500 years. Why? Because they stand the test of time because they teach and the Word of God doesn't change. Contemporary songs or spiritual songs, that last phrase there, you know, we capture where the church is, where Christian people are, but then they pass off the scene. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, know some of those old songs sung in the 70s or the 80s, the 90s. We don't sing them anymore. They pass on. Those are not old hymns. Those are sometimes people say, well, let's sing those old hymns. They're not old hymns. They're just old songs that were spiritual songs that are like little ditties, you know. And they, they're really not doctrinally contented. They just captured where the church was at, at a particular time. Our Lord deserves sincere, enthusiastic, and knowledgeable praise. They were singing the Psalter in Psalm 118 when Jesus was riding down the street. True worship. We should evaluate, are we doing true worship? True worship is a natural response. It's a natural outgrowth of contemplation of God's character and his goodness to us. That's what true worship is. As we ponder the scriptures, as we ponder our God, it causes worship to well up in our soul and we want to praise him. Why? Because we only praise things that we admire, that we love, that are maybe greater than ourselves, that are wonderful to us. That's what we praise. Some people praise athletic teams. 
Some people praise, you know, political leaders, examples of courage or great soldiers or whatever. We praise things that we admire, that we respect, that we love. And when we contemplate God's character, his virtues, then we are moved to praise him in true worship. So it's a response. True worship is response of something that's going on in our head, not something that's emotionally worked up. There's nothing wrong with emotions. But true praise is not something that the, you know, the worship leader gets people all worked up into a frenzy. That's not true worship. True worship is we contemplate God's character, his goodness, his works, and praise just wells up in our soul and comes out of our mouth. That's what true worship is. And it seems to be, at least for many, that is exactly what is happening in this passage of Scripture. But it should be happening still today. As we contemplate God, and to truly contemplate God, you have to divorce yourself from some of the busyness of life. You have to separate yourself from some of the chaos, some of the busyness of life. And you have to get alone with God. You have to contemplate God if you're going to be a true worshiper. That's why we come in and we prepare our hearts so we can truly worship God. So let me say to you, you may not be a singer. You may not consider yourself to be a singer but you better be a praiser. If you're a true Christian, you will be a praiser. If you take time to contemplate God, you will praise him. Even though you may be off pitch, off key, but still sing. I was listening this morning as we were singing. We should be praisers. I can think of a few situations, and so can you, where everyone around us was cheering something or clapping, or laughing at something and you didn't feel, or I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to praise that. It wasn't funny to me. It wasn't something that I was cheering about, excited about, and you felt kind of alienated. What went on didn't elicit praise from me, or clap from me, or shout from me because it wasn't something that lined up with my Christian values. You've been there. Somebody tells a joke, everybody laughs, and you say, I I can't laugh at that. That was off color. That was off the mark. That was demeaning. We've all been there. What went on didn't elicit praise from us as a Christian, and you feel awkward. We should never feel that way at church. I don't care how old or young you are, how much musical training or lack thereof you've had, you should be able to praise God in church. And not just in church, you should catch yourself praising God at home and in your car and even at work because it comes up from our soul. Do you openly praise God? If not, why not? Do you not spend any time in contemplation and thought? Third and finally, our God weeps over man's condition, verses 41 through 44. Let's read those verses again. It says, and as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, he speaks of the city as if it's a person because it contains so many persons, the Jewish people. 
especially in this your day, the day that your king is being presented to you, this your day, the things that had been made for you. Your king is here. He's delivering peace to you. This is the very day that God ordained for your king to be accepted by you. But now they're hidden from you and from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment, siege wall around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know who was coming to town, who was visiting you, presenting himself as king. Our God weeps over man's condition. The crowd was rejoicing. The Bible tells us Jesus is weeping. They were shouting, singing, quoting scripture, and Jesus is weeping. This is the second occasion that Jesus wept openly. The other one just happened shortly before this where he raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 35. The Bible says, the shortest verse in the English language, Jesus wept. Because he saw what sin had done to mankind. And Lazarus was a close personal friend. So he saw the, the results of sin. The results of sin, the Bible tells us, is death, pain and suffering, but ultimately death. So he was witnessing firsthand to someone that was very near to him the results of sin. And Jesus wept. He didn't weep over Lazarus so much because he was going to raise him from the dead. He wept over the results of sin that he had come to lay down his life to pay for. This is another time that he weeps. And by the way, the crowd that says shouted and sang because of the mighty works, specifically probably referring to what had just happened with Jesus raising Lazarus. It was the most undeniable miracle. Lazarus had been dead, buried for three days when Jesus raises him. And the Pharisees, the Bible tells us, couldn't refute it. They couldn't deny it. Matter of fact, they were going to kill Jesus and Lazarus just to get the, you know, exhibit A out of the way. They were shouting of his mighty work. He raises the dead, gives sight to the blind, etc., etc. So the crowds were rejoicing. Jesus is weeping. And both John the Baptist and Jesus preached that the kingdom is at hand. Both John the Baptist and Jesus, that was not a shell game. That was not smoke and mirror when they said the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. Jesus was the king and the kingdom could have come. Yes, it would have been spiritual in nature just as the kingdom is now. We refer to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses that term. The kingdom of God is now, but it's only in part. We have a king, we're subjects, we have kingdom law, but it's not fulfilled. But Jesus was presenting himself as king and he would have established his kingdom. He still would have died. He still would have been crucified and shed his blood. But they rejected him. To reject the king is to reject the kingdom. The Jews wanted the kingdom. They wanted the overthrow of the Romans. They wanted the kingdom, but they didn't want the king. You can't have a kingdom without the king. They rejected the king so they didn't get the kingdom. And everywhere Jesus looked, he found cause for weeping. Let me develop that. If he looked back, he saw how the nation had wasted its opportunity. God had called the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, 
to be the mediator between God and lost nations of the world. They failed miserably at that. Miserably. So he looked back, he saw how the nation had wasted its opportunities and was ignorant of this time of visitation. And when he looked within, he saw the spiritual ignorance, the spiritual blindness. They should have known who he was. He gave them undeniable proofs. God had given them his word. They were the only nation that had the word of God. He had given them the word. He had given them the prophets to explain the word. But as he looked within, it caused him to weep. As he looked around, Jesus saw religious activities and he was grieved by them. Matter of fact, in the next passage, Jesus cleanses the temple. He says, you've made my house of prayer a den of thieves because they were exchanging money and ripping off the common people with the temple coinage. And so he looked around, he saw the religious activity that grieved him. The temple had become a den of thieves. The religious leaders were legalistic and they were self-promoting. They'd laid heavy burdens upon the people that God never intended for them to have. As he looked ahead, and that's what he refers to here, as he looked ahead, he wept even more because he saw the terrible judgment that was coming to this city and the people who dwelt in it and all the land of the Jews. And within a very short period of time, Titus, the Roman general, who later became the emperor, did exactly what's described here. He built siege walls all around Jerusalem. Matter of fact, we know exactly the date. It was March 9th, and Jerusalem was in under siege for 143 days. And it happened just as the Passover was happening. Not this Passover, obviously, but later as the Passover was happening, so it captured within the walls of Jerusalem hundreds of thousands of people. Josephus said 600,000 Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. 600,000 Jews, many of them crucified. They lined the roads with crucified Jews. He leveled the city. He leveled the temple. And thus began the Jewish diaspora, the scattering of the Jews, the dispersion of the Jews. The Balfour Declaration, where the Jews for the first time came together and they formed a nation. They were dispersed for 2,000 years. Titus, the Roman general, did that. Jesus promised, predicted that. Because they rejected the king, they rejected the kingdom. He says, because of that, you don't realize the day of visitation is here, you'll be destroyed. And they did a thorough job. Slaughtered the Jews destroyed the city of Jerusalem, tore down the temple, carted everything off to Rome. So he looked ahead and he saw it all. Why did it happen? Because the people did not realize that God had visited them. Now let me just pause here and make a moment of application. Destruction is coming to this world and to every person that doesn't recognize that Jesus has visited them. You may be here today because someone invited you, because you're curious, because you got something in the mail about Easter. You may be here today for good reason, but if you don't accept Jesus Christ as he's visiting you, you will be destroyed eternally. Serious thought. 
serious contemplation because the people did not realize that God had visited them and was appealing to them. They were destroyed. The Bible says it this way. He came unto his own, and you can finish the verse, and his own received him not. He came into his own people, the Jewish people, and they received him not. John 1.11. And they shouted, within a few days, we will not have this man rule over us. The Jews cried for peace. They shouted for peace. That's one of the words here in their exultation. They shouted for peace, but there is no peace where Jesus is not king. We should try and work for peace in Ukraine. That's a good thing. But there will not be peace on earth until Jesus is king. And that's why the angels at the birth of Christ, the incarnation said, peace on earth, goodwill to men, or men of goodwill. Peace can only come into the hearts of those that recognize that Jesus is king, that he is sovereign, that he's Lord, that he's Savior. Do you have that peace today? Peace comes through knowing God and accepting what Jesus did on the cross. That's exactly what Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says. We can have the peace with God and the peace of God individually as we accept him as Savior. As we look back over this chapter, these verses, first, have you made yourself available to God? That's kind of the first thought I was driving home. The owner of the donkey, the donkey himself, said, God, here I am. Not much, but here I am. Have you made yourself available to God? Second, do you sincerely praise him for who he is and what he has done? We're not sure that most of those that lined the streets were sincere and knowledgeable because they rejected him. But do you sincerely, knowledgeably praise him? Do you catch yourself just praising God? Is Jesus grieved over your unbelief? All of us have an element of unbelief in our life at times. We don't take God at his word. We see in the last section there, Jesus is grieved, in their case, over the unbelief that they didn't believe that he was truly the Messiah and truly the king. But God is grieved at our unbelief when we don't trust him, when we don't really believe his word and act upon it. That's what obedience is, is believing something and then acting upon it. So you mull those questions over in your mind as we close. Let's pray, Father. As we begin to contemplate this last few days of your life in these next few weeks coming up to Easter, work in our hearts, work in our minds, change us a little bit every week we would pray as we line up our life, parallel it with the Word of God. So if there are things that need to be done here today, Lord, we ask that you will move. Your Holy Spirit would have great liberty, great freedom to convict, to woo, to draw, to change, and bring us into conformity with Christ. If there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior, may they seek myself out, or Pastor Zach, or Pastor Brian, or Pastor Addison, someone here, a man or a woman, 
and settle this important matter of their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.